Hey, uh, good morning and welcome to New Valley. I'm very glad that you have uh, joined us for worship this morning. Uh, Today we are continuing in our our study of Genesis and we're now turning uh, to the person of Joseph and his story. Uh, Interestingly, the story of Joseph takes up uh, a really significant part of the story of Genesis, including, you know, uh, we're talking about Adam and Noah and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, but uh, the the story of Joseph is, is a lengthy one. And a profound one. And we're going to be looking at it starting in verse 12 today of chapter 37 and through the whole chapter. I'm going to read the whole thing. It is lengthy, but uh, please follow along as I, as I read. Now, his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it's well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So I sent him from the valley of Hebron and came to him in Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, where are you seeking, or what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away, for I have heard them say, let us go down to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands by saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness. But do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. The Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, This is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloths on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. So 
we turn to this story, and, and if you're familiar with the story of Joseph, you may be asking, you know, what is this all about? Why, why is it in the Bible? What is, what is happening in this story? Obviously, it's an interesting one and a great narrative. And there's lots of things you could say about Joseph, and, and there's lots of ways in which we can practice what Joseph had in terms of faith and, and apply it to our lives. But the main point of this story, and, and as we study his life, is that nothing can stop God's promise or his power uh, to bring about his covenant with Abraham and his descendants. Nothing's going to stop God. Uh, and, and life circumstances are hard in spite of famine, sinful family dynamics, and many other evils and temptations that come their way. God is faithful and powerful to bring his people and his plan through and to fruition. Ultimately, it's a, it's a celebration of God's providence in his sovereignty. In the story of Jacob, we see the Lord at work behind the scenes when God seemed most silent to him. And of course, that's an application point for us as well. When facing difficulty or trial or struggle, and we, we often feel like, where is God? He seems utterly silent. Is he at work at all in my life? So the first thing we're going to see today is the pattern of sin, and the next point that we'll see is Uh, the power of God. But first, the pattern of sin. Jacob had 12 sons, and the two youngest sons were from his beloved wife, Rachel, the the one he loved so much. Uh, And Benjamin uh, was the the last born, and Joseph was the second to last born. And, And Rachel died during childbirth with Benjamin. In spite of the fact that Jacob intimately knows the destructive power of favoritism, and he experienced it in his own life from his own father, He continues this horrible pattern uh, in his own parenting and fathering. He repeats it, lavishly giving uh, Jacob most of his affection. And and, and the the narrator tells us, like, he loved Jacob more than he loved his other sons. He famously gave him a coat of many colors. It's so famous that they made a Broadway show after it, right? And perhaps you've seen it. It's a coat like this would have been rare. It would have been expensive, uh, and it would signify royalty. So the narrator tells us that Joseph's brothers hated him, absolutely hated him, and that their hatred increased uh, almost in every passing day. They hated him just for the general favoritism that was uh, going his way, and they hated him for the coat even more. Then Joseph had a dream from the Lord that they would all bow down to him And he decided to share that dream with them. And then they hated them even more. Uh, Then he has a second dream about the same theme, that that his whole family was going to bow down to him. And he decides to tell them again about the dream. And now they really, really, really hate him. So instead of keeping the second dream to himself, he took delight in telling them about it. It even says that he says, behold, I had a second dream, almost like, aha, I can't wait to tell you about this dream. You're all going to bow down to me. Now, even, even Jacob uh, is offended by this. He says, what is, what is this dream? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves on the ground before you? Joseph's mother, Rachel, had passed away, so it's possible he's referring to Leah, his aunt. In the ancient Near East, this would have been highly offensive for a son 
to tell an elderly member of the family, especially mother and father, you're going to bow down to me one day. I will rule over you. So the narrator is building this tension, right? We feel it. We can sense it. Like that things are not okay in this family. And it's giving us the background for what we just read about when these brothers do this horrible thing to, to Joseph. Joseph or Jacob sends Joseph to check on his brothers in the field. And as he arrives uh, towards them, he can, they can see, them, he see him coming towards them. They say, here comes this dreamer, right? And this is all sarcasm, right? They hate his dreams. Twice he's told them this horrible dream. And, 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 and they're like, uh, this dreamer is coming. In the Hebrew, it literally means the master of dreams. And so they sarcastically say, oh, dreamer boy is coming but let's kill him. Their fury is that bad. Now, what's interesting, though, is later in the story, uh, doesn't he become a master of dreams? Like, it's literally his dreams, uh, his interpretation of these dreams that catapults him into a position of power that gave him the ability to later save his family. Kill him, they say. Let's throw him into one of these pits, a cistern, and then we'll tell uh, our father that he was torn to death by an animal. But Reuben, Leah's firstborn son, and Reuben in Hebrew means a delicious sandwich. Like, wow. (laughs) The root means sauerkraut and cheese and Thousand Island. No, no, not at all. It means, look, a son. Uh, (laughs) Reuben rescues Joseph by offering an alternative plan. Let's not kill him. Let's just throw them in the pit. Now, these pits are pretty intense. These are cisterns usually holding water uh, for sheep and cattle and that kind of thing. And they could be as, as deep as 20 feet. Uh, they would have a, a narrower uh, entrance and then it would, like a bottle, it would, it would get more uh, wide at the bottom. And they throw him into it. This, of course, would have been dangerous, but Reuben is trying to save his brother, to buy time for them to change their mind or for him to go back later and to rescue him. Later, though, uh, they must have worked up quite an appetite by throwing their brother into the pit. Uh, And so they're eating uh, lunch, I guess, and they see some foreigners coming towards them. And they say to themselves, hey, you know, I mean, if we kill him, we're not going to make any money out of this thing. But if we sell him into slavery, at least we profit and then he's gone. We'll never see him again. And he's out of our our lives, which is great. And we can make a little money and we'll tell our father uh, this plan that he was killed by an animal. So, to cover up what they did, they slaughtered one of the goats, they dip Joseph's coat into the blood, and they tell Jacob what they had said they would about the wild animal. Now, in this story, what we're seeing is the universal pattern of sin in people's lives. Universal sin, what do you mean by that? Well, who are these people? (laughs) Uh, Abraham. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the 12 sons of of Israel, Israel himself and his 12 sons. These are the 12 tribes of Abraham. These are the patriarchs of our faith. This is the family upon which God is bringing his covenant promises. This is the family through which Jesus will come. This is the Hebrew people. And what we see even in this people, the very people of God, there is still a pervasive pattern and power of sin. Because what we see is this. Um, sin is not just something we do from time to time. Sin is not just something 
uh, that we fall uh, prey to or are tempted by, the reality is we have an inner bent because since the fall of Adam and Eve into sin that, that colors us, that, that drives us towards uh, spiritual selfishness and living for ourselves instead of living for God. It's what the Bible calls total depravity, which is not utter depravity, but it's the reality that sin has affected every part of our life. It doesn't mean that we're utterly depraved. It means sin has tainted every aspect of our life. And and the worst thing is it's affected our hearts and our desires. And so the, the reality is you've got... Joseph, who's being so selfish and arrogant, and that leads, and, and, and uh, here's the real pattern, right? There's a pattern of favoritism that you see. There's also a pattern with Jacob, who's a deceiver, right? He himself is a deceiver. Then he meets Laban, another family member, who's a great deceiver. And then now he's deceived by his own sons, who sell his favorite son, Joseph, into slavery. We see that the problem with humanity and the problem even with you and me is this. We're not just tempted by sin. We have a broken, fallen heart that often chooses every day to love ourselves more than we love God. And all these things that go on in our lives are often a result of our own sin or somebody else's sin against us. And, and that's a really negative story, clearly, that, but that is, that is what the Bible teaches us. But on the other hand, you ask yourself, is that now the meaning of life ever since the fall? We're just broken, cursed people for whom no, there is no hope and nothing good is going to happen? And thanks be to God, right in the middle of the story of this depraved story of murderous intent and jealousy and anger and rage and throwing a brother into a pit, you find God at work right there in the story. So we're going to see the power of God now as the second point. The power of God. Look at Joseph's situation. What if Joseph had never found his brothers in the wilderness? What if Joseph was killed by his brothers? What if Reuben hadn't been there to save him? What if Reuben had been there to save him but uh, from being sold into slavery? Because part of the story that we don't know yet in Genesis 37 is that this enormous famine is coming and, and is going to threaten the lives of everyone in this family. And so this horrible famine is coming. If Joseph dies, they all die. If Joseph remains at home, they all die. And with him, the messianic seed. Derek Kidner is a great commentator. He's written a great commentary on the book of Genesis. And he says this, everything from the ill-conceived errand to the chance meeting with the stranger combined to deliver Joseph into his brother's hands. Yet it would turn out that God had been as watchful in his hiddenness as he had been in any miracle. In God's silence, seeming silence, as it seemed as if it had to have seemed like to Joseph that God didn't care. But God was not only caring for Joseph in that moment. He was caring for, for his family. And ultimately, he was caring for his blessing that he had promised Abraham to bless the entire world through. God was caring for his people even in his silence. Now, there are two characters in the Gospels as well. Uh, and it's interesting to me as we study the life of Jesus, and maybe you've thought about this, he is the Son of God. He is God incarnate, the, the, the very image of God himself in, in humanity as a human. And yet in his humanity, he didn't just have disciples and followers and, and people worshiping him. He also had friends and family relationships. 
He was very close to his cousin John, clearly. He loved John. And he also loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And, and there's two stories. One story is the story of Lazarus, who gets really sick. And, and he's about to die. And they send word to Jesus. He's with his disciples. And they send word and saying, this friend of yours, Lazarus, that you love is dying. Please come. We know that you can do something about it. And, and Jesus delays and allows him to die. And you know the story. It's a beautiful story. He goes, uh, and, then, and then there's a resurrection, of course. He goes and brings Lazarus back from the dead. And it's this beautiful story that shows the power of Jesus as Messiah who is able to raise people even from the dead. The other story, okay, so great. That's awesome. A bad thing happens. A trial happens. A tragedy happens. And then Jesus comes in and heroically raises his friend from the dead. But there's another story. It's John the Baptist. John loved Jesus. They were cousins. But from the womb, he loved Jesus. And he spent his entire life pointing to Jesus, especially in his adult ministry. His role was one who would prepare the way of the Lord, as Isaiah had prophesied. That there was be one, Isaiah prophesied, that would come before the Messiah and prepare the way, prepare Israel. And that's exactly what John did. He would say, uh, constantly pointing to the people of Israel, the, the kingdom of God is at hand and he is the Messiah. I must decrease, he must increase. And so John loved Jesus and yet John was arrested. And then later, John was killed for his faith after the arrest. Jesus did not return uh, and, and resurrect John from the dead. He remained dead. Now, question, did Lazarus have more faith than John? Clearly not. Uh, in fact, uh, Jesus himself said that there's no one like John. Did John love Jesus less than Lazarus? Uh, clearly not. There's no one greater at putting Christ preeminently in his life like John the Baptist. And yet John the Baptist suffered this horrible fate of dying, dying for his faith and dying for his ministry. Jesus doesn't go to him. Jesus does not raise him. Now, the sad reality is in this life, we have trouble. We have trial. We have difficulty. And in the midst of that trial and that trouble and that difficulty, it's so important then we interpret things through faith and through understanding uh, of what God is up to behind the scenes. There's this great hymn written in the 19th century uh, called, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. It's written by a man named George Matheson. And Matheson had been in love with a young lady, and they'd gotten engaged, and his, uh, he was in seminary uh, training to be a pastor, and he began to lose his eyesight, and it was very clear that he was going blind. And his love of his life, his fiancée left him because she didn't want to marry a blind man. And so he had a sister that cared for him and was his caretaker and, and managed their property and, and their home and, and, like, nursed him and was with him because he had lost his eyesight completely. But at age 40, when he was 40, his sister uh, fell in love and got married. And on the evening of, of that wedding, uh, he is feeling enormously uh, fearful because who's going to care for him now? And the future of his care is totally up in the air. And he said that within about 15 minutes, he wrote the, the, the lyrics to this hymn, which are absolutely amazing. I just want to read one of them. 
It says this, O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. The reality is, as we read Joseph's story, you can trace the rainbow through the rain very clearly, right? When you've read the whole thing. When Joseph is in the pit, (laughs) he is crying out to God and there is no answer. Uh, He has been, his clothes are torn off of him, he's thrown in a pit, and he's left thinking he's going to die, and he's begging God, he had to have been crying out to God or for someone to help him, and there is no answer. All he's hearing is a cold silence from God. Later, imagine how he felt as he's being carried off into slavery. Okay, I'm alive, but now I'll never see my family again. Everything that is good in my life has been taken from me. I was my father's special son, and now I've lost everything. He has no idea what slavery is going to entail, and he's being carried off, and and God had to have seemed cold, bitter, and silent to him. And at, at the same time, though, we know the whole story. We know on the other side, God is using this story to redeem his family and to redeem his people. You can, you can trace the rainbow uh, in the rain, and it's easy. In life, in real life, there are times, even in your life, where maybe you're able to recount and say, like, I'm able to see the rainbow through the rain. I'm able to see how God, I can connect the dots, how this horrible thing happened to me, and yet now I can look and see how God meant it for blessing, even though men or women meant it for evil against me, right? I hope that's true. But there's also a sad reality that for many of us, there are aspects of our life and pain and trial and suffering and difficulty that you have not been able to connect the dots yet. And perhaps in this life, you'll never be able to connect the dots. Perhaps in this life, you'll never be able to say, oh, I can trace the rainbow through the rain and I can see, I can see exactly how God is using this. You may not be able to do that with every situation, but I do know this. Romans 8.28 is still true. And if you know the Bible at all, you're thinking, I know where he's going. He's going to Romans 8.28. <laughs> now, I want to tell you, Please be careful with how you use Romans 8.28 pastorally. Meaning, you may not be a pastor, but you get put in moments where you're there to help someone with spiritual direction or love or support. You're at a funeral and someone has lost someone. Don't quote Romans 8.28 at that point. Uh, At the graveside or when somebody's just heard really bad news, this is not the time to quote this verse. So some of you, perhaps you're in the middle of a very difficult thing, so forgive me but I'm doing it to the whole group and I would not do this just to you personally. But Romans 8.28 says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, those who are called according to his purpose. Now, one of the ways that we often incorrectly interpret this passage is, and I hear it, I hear it interpreted this way, that ultimately all things that happen to us are good. <laughs> that is not what this passage is saying. In fact... The reality is your greatest suffering and difficulty and trial in life may be a great evil that's been done against you. 
It's not saying, oh, that evil thing, that abuse or that horrible thing that happened to you, that's actually good if you just get the right perspective. That's not what the Bible is saying. What it is saying is that even some great evil that's done against you, God will use for your ultimate good, even though you may not be able to trace the rainbow through the rain in this life, God will use it in a believer's life to make you and me more like his son, Jesus Christ. That's the promise. The promise that we want to have uh, is, is that God's going to use everything for our, our benefit in this life, that we'll get rich or that things will just work out, we'll get a better job or, or, or something really great is going to happen to us in this life. But that is not what this passage promises. It promises that God is going to use everything in our life to make our heart and character more and more like his son. Because that's his ultimate goal, is it not? That we would become more like Jesus. Now, God doesn't waste anything, and that's one of the things that we see in Joseph's story and in our own story, and that's what Romans 8, 28 tells us. God is not wasting anything, and his providential care for you is so beautiful and so powerful. And so, brothers and sisters, when trials come, we don't just tough it out and just say, I need to throw positive energy out of the universe, and maybe it'll come back to me. Instead, I'm going to ask you to to go a little deep with me this morning and and to tell you what you need to do in that moment is lay hold of the doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone. You say, well, I don't even know what that is, so how can I do that? Well, let me explain what that is. In that moment, you're going to face one trial or two, and unfortunately, we often face two trials. There's the first trial, which is this horrible thing that has happened to you, sickness, divorce, depression, death abuse. Something has happened to you. Some horrible thing has happened to you. That's the trial. Whatever you're going through. The second trial that then we often endure is this pervasive sense of guilt or, or, or condemnation that God is coming against you and must hate me because of this trial that I'm going through. I mean, how could this happen to me if God doesn't hate me, right? That's, what, that's, what, that's the second trial. The first trial is the thing itself. The second trial is what you do in your heart and say, God must hate me or be against me if this thing has happened to me, and it's a lie straight from the evil one. Instead, at that moment, you need to lay hold, listen, to the doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone, which is this, that Jesus Christ, when he was on the cross... He suffered and died in your place. He received the curse from God. God is not cursing you in your trial if you're a son or daughter of God. God is not cursing you because the curse fell on Jesus so that you would not receive the curse. That everything you and I have done on earth and and, in our sin and deserved from God, it didn't land on us in the gospel. It fell on Jesus on the cross. He died an atoning death for us. Jesus received what we should have received, but here's the beautiful part. This is what theologians call double imputation. He got what we deserved, and here's the beautiful reality. In the gospel, in his life, and his death, and his resurrection, you and I receive what he deserved. How does that happen? The only, only innocent human being that's ever lived got what we guilty people deserved, and in turn, he would lavish on, on us such beautiful, wonderful grace that we get what 
Jesus Christ deserves. We are co-heirs with God, with Christ. We are his brothers and sisters. We have an inheritance that is imperishable and unfading and in glory waiting for us that is ours because of what Jesus has done for us. Amen? And so when you face trial and difficulty, you need something more than just a stiff upper lip or to say, I'm going to tough it out. You need to lay hold of the gospel that you are not being cursed, even though you're facing this horrible thing. And you may die in jail like John did, but Jesus is still for you. And all of his promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. That's what's true of you. And yet we so often don't believe it. God ignored Joseph's cries, but he was listening, and he was at work. Listen, ultimately, what I want you to understand, there was another favored son who was handed over to evil men. Joseph was handed over, but there was another favored son that was handed over to evil men. There was another favored son who was stripped of his clothes and ill-treated. This son was sold for 30 pieces of silver and handed over to be judged, flogged, and crucified. Joseph cried out in a pit, and no one listened, and it seemed as if God was not listening. And Jesus in the garden cried out, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass. God, it seemed like, ignored Joseph's cries for help, but he did so in order that his family would be saved. And, and the father ignored Jesus' request, let this cup pass in order that the world might be saved. Even more so, God the Father ignored Jesus Christ to have the cup removed so that through him the whole world would be saved through his atoning death and have the potential to be saved. The Father may have seemed silent to Jesus in that prayer, but the cross is shouting to us that God is not silent. God is overcoming sin and death through his gospel, and there is coming a day when death will die and will be swallowed up in victory through the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray for my friends here today, and I ask that if, if there's anyone in this room that does not yet know you and does not know your love for humanity that you have sent your son as a blessing to the whole world through this promise that came to Abraham. I, I pray, oh, Father, that you, would, that you would draw them and show them how beautiful and wonderful you are and that how you truly are the provision for our, our greatest need. And, Father, for those of us that already trust and know you and, and are looking to you by faith, may, may we lay hold even more of what's true especially right now for my friends who are suffering in trial and difficulty and, and really traumatic things. Oh, Lord, would you please let them know that in Jesus they are not cursed and that you're with them even in the silence and that you're walking with them. We pray all that in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.